Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be interviewing global leader in shared death studies and end-of-life phenomenon, William Peters. And the two of them will be discussing his newest book, At Heaven's Door. So stay tuned for some incredible stories of shared crossing experiences and William's research on them. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at the station's website. That's 1150kknw.com, 1150kknw.com. And you can also find the show on iTunes and Podcast One. Um, Benny, how are you doing this morning? Doing awesome, Sunny. Ready for the weekend. And uh, yeah, that's about it. We're going to get our grill on, maybe take some hikes in. You know, it's a good Memorial Day weekend in front of us. Awesome. Well, I hope you get some good weather for all that. I'll be staying indoors, I think, most of it. Recuperating from my first week of my language class. Oh, boy. (laughs) You should still get out and take a break, though, you know. Yeah, we probably will. All right, We'll we'll talk more about it on First Friday next week with Dr. Alessandro. Oh, yes, that's very true. Yes. Well, okay, as usual, I'm very excited about our guest, but I have to say I'm extra excited this morning because what we're talking about today is one of my favorite topics, end-of-life phenomenon. Uh, And... We've had folks on the show who have had near-death experiences, folks who are researching near-death experiences, but I think one of the the topics that's becoming more well-known in this end-of-life phenomena are shared death experience or shared crossings, which is what our our, uh, guest today has uh, called these experiences of Um, Well, I'll let him explain more exactly how he would define a shared crossing. So let me just read you his bio because it is amazing. Um, He's got a brand new book out. Um, I'll mention the name of the book multiple times throughout the show. Um, But I want to make sure that you have uh, his information. Of course, I, let's see. Yes, the book, the full title of the book, At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife teach about dying well and living better. The author of this wonderful new book is William Peters. He is the founder of the Shared Crossing Project, whose mission is to positively transform relationships to death and dying through education and raising awareness about shared crossings and their healing benefits. As the director of the Shared Crossing Research Initiative, William and his team collect and study extraordinary end-of-life experiences, or shared crossings. Uh, William is a global leader in shared death studies and end-of-life phenomenon. He has developed methods to facilitate the shared death experience, which I can't wait to hear more about, and to assist experiencers in meaningfully integrating their experiences. Uh, William is a psychotherapist at the Family Therapy Institute of Santa Barbara, where he specializes in end-of-life counseling as a means towards psycho-spiritual evolution. He served as a hospice worker with Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. His work is informed by his two near-death experiences that he himself had and a variety of shared crossings that he has experienced. William has presented at the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine's annual conference. William's work has appeared in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine in Omega 
oh, sorry, and in Omega, the Journal of Death Studies. Uh, William's book entitled At Heaven's Door, published by Simon & Schuster, just came out. Um, So uh, to find out more about William, his work, the new book, the Shared Crossing Project, all of the above, just go to sharedcrossing.com. That is sharedcrossing.com. And I want to make sure we also mention he's got some events coming up here in a few months, one of which is in Santa Barbara, California, which I know um, that is such a beautiful place to visit. So um, we'll definitely mention more about these events if you want to take this work deeper. Um, William, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you, Sunny. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I know you have been making the rounds in the press lately. This book is like hit the scene. <laughs> Thank you. It, 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 fortunately, it has. And I think as you alluded to a little bit earlier, uh, your interest in this, you're, you are on the cutting edge and noticing it. And I'm so appreciative of people like you who are bringing it out to the community and to, uh, to the world at large, because these experiences that we'll talk about happen, and they have been largely a misunderstood, uh, often dismissed, sometimes disparaged. And now we're seeing a radical shift that is so positive. So Yes, absolutely. So I, I, there are so many things that I can't wait to unpack about this, but I find with you particularly, your personal story is so relevant to you doing the work that you do now. So I'd love if you would just share a bit about uh, your background and how you came to this work based on your own very interesting experiences. Yes, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you know, when you're, when I look at my life, I think mm-hmm. I could have never imagined that as a teenager or even a college student or even in, you know, just in my 30s or so, I would be doing this type of work. So I have been kind of, I will say, um, reluctantly drawn into it. I'm very pleased that I'm here now, but it was a difficult road to get here. Uh, So I'll start. I had a high-speed skiing accident at 17 years old. Prior to that, my life was pretty normal. Uh, Suburban kid in what is now Silicon Valley. And on an afternoon, or actually I should say a morning, I took a really bad uh, fall on skiing and fractured my spine. And in that moment, I was catapulted out of my body. And what I remember first was the sense of realizing that everything that I was present, I had an awareness of being alive and observing my reality, but it was completely dark. And that's, and then I started feeling a pull on my body light started coming in around me. And then, and then I gradually remember seeing my body on the ski slope, but I was way above and accelerating rapidly away from it. And then I was enamored, no pain, complete, sublime feelings, uh, enamored by what I was seeing beautiful Lake Tahoe, which is where the ski area was San Francisco Bay area, Colorado Rockies then a satellite view of, you know, planet earth and the ocean. It was just gorgeous. And my life review was happening at the same time. This is very well known in the near-death experiences. For those of you who are familiar with this, I know so many of your listeners, thanks to you, have been introduced to some of the great NDE experiences like Dr. Evan Alexander and and Raymond Moody and others. Um, So this phenomenon is well known. But for me, at 17 years old in 1979, I had no idea what was going on, nor did I care. I, I was just enjoying this ride 
until I saw the light. And then for most experiencers, they're like, oh my, that is just gorgeous and beautiful. This I don't want to go back to planet Earth. For me, it was a different realization. I'm dying. And I did not complete what I incarnated to do in this lifetime. So I was panicked, nervous, anxious, and I was pleading with God. I, I grew up Catholic, so when I saw that light. I said, that's God. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> and I said, God, you can't let me die. You have to let me go back. And God didn't say a thing. I just went fully into the light, was there for a while. There, I don't know how long. I just, at that point, I was like, okay, I've made my request to go back, but this is pretty darn good. I'm going to hang out. And then I felt a pushback on my body and started moving out of the light back to what would be uh, my human life and planet Earth. And as I was moving away, I you know, heard telepathically, make something of your life. Mm. And I didn't know what that meant, but it stuck with me. And now then I would just, you know, was now I was concerned about how am I going to how am I going to find my body now in this beautiful galaxy? I couldn't even see planet Earth. I was just going back. But then I realized something. Hey, wait a minute. There's a force pulling me back. And I just kind of let go and was just like being on a zip line. Uh, and, and so I came back into my body and I, unfortunately, uh, that injury left me, you know, with a good deal of chronic pain from the spinal injury, difficulty walking my, my life as an athlete, uh, and healthy, able-bodied, you know, young person was dashed at that point. And I would live the next three decades, um, trying to work through the pain uh, and quite frankly, the grief of not being able to do the things I really loved and wanted to do. And so uh, in the midst of that, I had, you know, I, I didn't, you know, typical kind of type A personality, which I am. Uh, I did live and work in Central America soon after I graduated from college. And it was there that I, I actually had my first shared death experience there. And I, I actually, I don't actually talk about it in my book. That was something that the editor said, let's save this for later. <laughs> I thought, I really like this one. So I'm going to share it with you, Sonny, and your, okay, and your listeners. Yes. <laughs> so this one landed up on the cutting floor. Um, but as, as editor, I love my editor, but that's what they do, you know. I, um, I hear these things, yes. <laughs> what? That's my favorite story. I know. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I'll share this with you. I don't share it very much. So it's interesting. That it's coming up from right now. So here I am, you know, I'm living and working in Southern Peru, uh, which is near the Chilean border. I say, so, you know, the civil war was going on in Peru at this time. And it was, you know, the Sendero Luminoso. What language are you studying? Cause uh, ancient Greek. <laughs> uh, they weren't speaking that one in Southern Peru. I'm sorry. Sammy, but. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, so, um, but I would use that because it was obviously I was speaking Spanish. And for those of you who are familiar with that, it means the shining path. It was a Maoist revolutionary group that was active in Peru. And there was just a huge civil war going on. So, you know, we would, we would, um, you know, I was working with basically foreign volunteers down there as part of the, actually the Catholic church, it was a mission, but we weren't interested in proselytization we were working with refugees from the civil war. Mm. 
So that was our work. But oftentimes on Sundays, we'd take a, a ride out to the coast, which was like 50 minutes away, you know, beautiful Peruvian, you know, a Southern Peru coast. And then we'd come back in the evening. And so in this day, we're coming back in the evening and imagine a two lane highway in the middle of in the Atacama desert, which is just sparse. There's hardly anything that grows there. I mean, they haven't had recorded rainfall apparently in like when I was there 30 years. So, you know, now with global warming, it's not likely things changed, but point being is we're on the road and we see a body on the road. And I, I say, you know, let's stop. And so we stop, I get out. And this is a, a peasant, as we would call a man, you know, a man of, uh, of the earth. This was somebody who could tell by his attire. He had a cotton shirt on that was worn. He had um, kind of sandals that were indicative of, of the work he did. It was a Sunday. So he was in his Sunday best of sorts and, and very small in stature, but I, I didn't know what happened to him, but I, you know, took his pulse I realized that he had a faint pulse, but he wasn't breathing. So I commenced CPR. Excuse me, commenced mouth to mouth. Did not do CPR. Did not need to do CPR with the pulse. So, but I commenced breathing because he wasn't breathing. And as I did that, all of a sudden, I felt an incredible fullness around me. It's almost like, you know, you can imagine you're in this spacious desert. There's it's just hot in the evening and you feel that baking heat, but it's still got an emptiness to it, uh, a vacuousness. And then all of a sudden I start doing this. I feel like presences come down. All of a sudden I feel like I am surrounded by fullness and beings. I don't, I can't see them. I can sense them. But as I'm doing this, I realize, Oh, I'm, I'm getting some sort of affirmation here. And, you know, as I look back on at the time, I didn't have any lexicon, any understanding for how to make sense of this or talk about this or anything. As it turns out, we would take him to the emergency uh, room, which was about a half an hour away from where we were. Uh, but in the back of the car, I continued. We had a big wagoneer. I continued the CPR. And I felt these loving presences just somehow telling me, you're doing good. Stay with it. This is good. And I don't know how to put words on that. Um, as it turns out, uh, I, I would visit, I, I was so moved. I dropped him off and I came back the next day and I gave blood and I came back and they said he wasn't doing well at all. Came back the next day and they said that unfortunately he had, had died of a head injury and, and, you know, and that he didn't have any other relatives. No one really ever came. They didn't. So, and this, you know, I mean, he was definitely, a, like I said, he was what we call a campesino, a, a, you know, a man who worked the fields and a, an agrarian worker. Um, so his family might not even heard that this happened to him. And, you know, communication in this era was sparse. So, um, but as I walked out with that information, I went into the little courtyard there. Improving hospitals are not pretty, um, and at least in this town. And so I sat down on a bench, and I just said, I said, I started weeping. I didn't know why. It just weeping, weeping, weeping. And I had, and 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 then as I did that, I felt the presences again, and they came back and they just kind of said you know, I, you did the right thing. 
And, you know, it's not, it's, all I felt was love and appreciation. And like I said, I didn't have words for any of this, but this was my first shared death experience. Um, and I don't, one of the reasons I don't really feature it perhaps in the book and even get in the book is because it's kind of hard to talk about as I got more, cons- more um, developed in my ability to attune to these experiences, then the more um, discernible, definable um, phenomena I could put language on. But this was the first time of just like, aha, oh, oh wow, this is a major heart opening spiritual experience that I had no words for at, you know, 24, 25 years old. Yeah. So let me, if we, if I can ask you two questions here at this point. So looking at these experiences you had, and I'm thinking even particularly back to the near death experience, you had this, this opportunity to come back. Um, and I'm curious if the way that you look at it, I you know some of the folks that I've talked to, uh, and especially when we're talking life reviews and you realize the purpose of a certain lifetime is for certain things, to learn certain things at the soul level. Do you think that your near-death experience was meant to happen on a soul level so that it would kind of prime you for the work that you now do, as devastating as that was for you physically and emotionally for the next several decades? You know, that is, that's a, a great question. And there's people who will often say, especially, you know, those who know my life in detail will say, well, clearly you have responded to make something of your life mm-hmm. and, and that the work you're doing now is, is the response to that, to what, you know, as I say, source, God, the divine was telling me, make something of your life. And this is the manifestation of that. For me, I, I don't have... I think that makes sense. I think what I have in, I think to be, this is what I know. The first 17 years of my life, I was not living in integrity with my deepest sense of calling and purpose. And, you know, I just was, I mean, maybe it's probably a harsh judgment for how many 17 year olds actually know who they are. Um, But if I look at it, um, this was a wake up call for sure. My life from that point forward changed radically and, and it changed in ways that took three decades to really um, distill and take form and, and actually be in a way that can be of service to Um, you know, the world in a certain way, because now I see this work as, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a whole mission for the shared crossing project, which I started for us to really transform, positively transform people's relationship to death and dying Mm -hmm. and end of life through raising awareness about these experiences and teaching people, not just about them, but how they can have them. Yes. Because that, you know, if you talk about mobilizing social change around an important common human issue like death and how and the fact that the way we die in currently the modern death is not pretty, it is devoid of spirituality in most cases. It's a medical event 
people are surprised both during the experience, after the experience, they even have, they have these experiences. I'm a grief and bereavement therapist, as you indicated earlier, but I can't tell you many times I look at people and said, who say to me after someone they know has died, it's like, I had no idea, A, that death would be that way, B, that, um, that, 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 that death, it could have been different. In other words, I could have had, I could have made this death for my loved one differently. And, and I'm really grieving, not just the loss of the person, but the way the person died, right. all of that. So the way we die in our culture currently is problematic for most of us. Now, if you're aware and you know how to make choices and you're like conscious and you get prepared for death and you know, whenever a death happens to you or a loved one that you've got things lined up and you're setting yourself up for the graceful death you want or the best death you can have, uh, then you're going to do fine. But how many people are like that? Not very many. Right. Uh, so anyway, so to get down to the point here, I feel that you can draw a line. I can draw a line between that near-death experience and my evolution over the many decades to get to a point where I can say based on not just that shared death, not just that first near-death experience, but a couple other, one other near-death experience, a variety of shared death experiences, now tons of end-of-life phenomena, pre-death visions and visitations that I've had, um, you know, post-death visions and visitations, many synchronicities. And of course, that turned into my clinical work, where then people came to me from first locally, and then I started teaching nationally and internationally. Now, now cases come into my research institute from all over the world. And, and I really tapped into something that I had no idea was there. And in fact, the field of near-death and end-of-life studies had no idea there was this many cases as well. So, so in that sense, I think at this point in time, um, I'm, I'm pleased to say that I, I think our work, you know, the work of me and my team is actually now really influencing uh, our culture, not just in the medical system. In fact, not... In fact, it's and it's really impacting average people like who are just going to be caregivers, going to be loved ones, going to die themselves. And they hear these stories and they'll say typically something like, I've either had something similar. I heard about this. My mother talked about this when her grandmother died. Everything, the lights got start going on. And when you hear, you know, when you read, if you do read my book or listen to it, however you do it or any of our work, really, you hear one of these stories, and all of a sudden, it lights you up in a certain way. It transforms you right as you're listening to it, because some part of it will ring as true to you. And, and in that ringing, that resonance of truth, we wake up as human beings and say, oh, we have an aha moment, you know, and, 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 then, and then now the next step is, how do I bring this reality into my life, into you know, the life of my loved ones. And if you're in healthcare in particular, in particular, so many people call me and say, I know this is true. How do I bring it into my medical practice? How do I bring it into hospice? How do I meet my clients in psychotherapy who are, you know, if you're working into, if you work in any part of you know, mental health related to death and dying, there's multiple entry points for this information. But now we're at the, how do we bring this reality in? Prior to my research, honestly, the, the big question was, are these experiences real or are they just hallucinations right. that that has been dealt with now? Now the <laughs> literature is in the top journals. 
uh, academia and medical sciences. This is not a negotiation anymore about the legitimacy of these experiences, nor the mental health status of the experiencers. These happen in healthy minds. These are real experiences, their gifts, their healing. Now the question is, how do we integrate this reality into every part of our healthcare system? Oh, yes. I love your passion around this. It's just, it's, it's contagious. Um, so in terms of quantifying these, like you say, this is the science is settled on this. That is because, at least this is my understanding, maybe we can talk about exactly how you define a shared crossing and then the particular features of it that are repeated over and over and over, regardless of the person's religion or awareness of shared crossings or all of the things. So why don't we tell us about that? Yeah, <laughs> great, Sunny, perfect. So let's start with the basics. What is a shared death experience? So a shared death experience occurs when somebody dies and a loved one, caregiver, or bystander, often a healthcare worker, a hospice worker, who's just in the room, when this person dies, these loved ones, caregivers, bystanders report that they shared in the journey, the transition process from this human life into what is often called a benevolent or good afterlife. Mm. And they can participate in a number of different ways. Uh, it's important to note that two thirds of these experiences are remote. We had no idea when Raymond, Mo Raymond Moody did his first round of research on this, basically because he was getting letters about this from people who said just this, you know, Raymond, I didn't have a near-death experience, but I had something very similar, like these mm. things you talk about, like, you know, seeing the light and the life review and seeing deceased relatives and seeing angels and things like that. I had all that, but I was at the bedside of my mother, daughter, significant other while, you know, he or she or they were dying. And Raymond started collecting these over the years, and then he wrote the first book, Glimpses of Eternity, on this in 2010, he, he popularized the term shared death experience. Um, so the reason I bring this up is when I first met Raymond in 2009, I said, I said, oh, my gosh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And and he and I, you know, he encouraged me to do the research. And, you know, I've been working with Raymond on again, off again over the years to, to really bring this to the public. Um, but what I found in my research was, hey, wait a minute. These experiences don't just happen at bedside. They happen remotely as well. And so and so there's another great researcher in Great Britain, uh, Dr. Peter Fennick. He has a whole team, Sue Brain and others who do this uh, work. And he was really interested in these experiences that he called deathbed coincidences. Mm -hmm. So what I, I call these now remote shared death experiences. So I've kind of built on the work of these, you know, pillars in the, in this, you know, study area, the scholar, these scholars, Dr. You know, uh, Peter Fennick and Raymond Moody. And so important for everyone to know, these can happen at bedside and uh, remotely. And the experiences are largely the same in terms of phenomena. So before I go into the specific phenomena, it's also important to note that these experiences can happen about 
uh, three quarters of the time they happen right around the time of death, like like very close to a death happening, as defined by uh, medical sciences, cessation of brain waves and eventual stop, uh, termination of respiration. But about nine percent happen minutes, hours, and in a couple case, few cases, I've seen a day earlier. Hmm. And then fourteen percent can happen afterwards, hours, you know, even up to a day or so later. And you may be saying, well, wouldn't you call that something else? No, the pattern is so clear that we know this is different from a pre-death vision of visitation or a post-death vision of visitation. And the reason why we know it's different is the features are different. So when you see these phenomena, and I'm going to go over to it just real clearly here. So the dominant um, kind of driving characteristics of a shared death experience are this notion of journey. Like there's a movement that you're somehow experiencing with the dying. These phenomena that are very uh, similar to the near-death experience happen as well. And people perceive these as a gift that's really important. When you have these experiences, it's like a huge aha. Uh, so, and 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 they'll also, um, well, if you go in, so that's the basic kind of terminology for you look at the shared death experience. And then the other piece to know about this is more than one person can have these at the same time with the person dying. That so this is, is the like, best. it's like validated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you, for those of you who have read the book, you'll see that there's, there's a wonderful, wonderful cases of multiple person SDEs and, you know, one isn't real. I'll share right now. It's like it's called Larry C. And his daughter and granddaughter are at his bedside. And they both have this experience of a cacophony of birds that are just going crazy outside the window. And it's so profound that um, Larry, who's dying, looks out, notices the birds going you know, ballistic. And they're both saying that the, the mute, they've never seen any display of bird life like this. Mm -hmm. And, and then he looks at the birds and he dies right in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they're looking out the window and they see him with reuniting with his mother, his, and his three brothers. And, and, and they, he had been estranged from one brother, and he has his arm around his own, one of these brothers that he was estranged from. He looks back at mm. Leslie, the daughter, and says, you see, it's, we're all good now. We're all good now. So I, I, when I'm, you know, I'm sharing, that's a multiple person. So you see the variations in the SDE, and there are various modes of participating, which is another level of analysis, but I'll briefly say that when you remote, when you experience remote um, a remote SDE, you can't. You will likely have the most common experiences. You just sense something has happened, and that you are drawn into a space where you have these phenomena that are going through your mind. and And the most common one you will see, fifty one percent of the time, you'll see the dying. You and you're just doing your life wherever you're doing, whether you're shopping, whether you're driving in a car, you could be in a sleep state and you're awakened by this and you see the dying and you sense 
typically you see most of the cases, but sometimes you sense them and you realize something's going on for them and you get all the information. Usually it's like, thank you. I'm okay. Sometimes you're drawn in to help now. So let's go to the first one. This is sensing at a distance. We also have witnessing unusual phenomena, which I've already defined a bit of. You see these NDE like phenomena. Uh, yeah, that's heavenly realms, tunnels, past life reviews, deceased relatives, uh, angels, spirit guides. You know, it's a spiritual Disneyland, basically. And you don't forget it. And then the other one, which I am just fascinated and thrilled by, is you can accompany the dying. So you actually can move along on this journey with the dying and see what they're experiencing, have the same experience as yourself, and be open into this in this luminous, glorious, you know, sublime reality in which you have knowledge of kind of everything. People say, in that realm, I could ask any question. I understood everything. And then the final one, which we only have happen about 6% of the time, but it's profound as well, is that you get called in as an experiencer, and you're a guide. You're like assisting the dying. You're orienting the dying in a way that helps them along their journey. And it's often expressed by this experiencer, something like, you know, I think my, I'll use my, I'm thinking of a case here with Jean, who's in the book, um, when she says, you know, I think my father would have found his way to the light and progressed but I certainly helped. I got there earlier and I oriented him. I told him, dad, you died and you're here in this afterlife and you need to look this way and there, Hey, there's your mom and there's your best friend, you know, so-and-so. And he turns around and he goes, thank you. Thank you. Now I understand. And then he's off on his way. So, um, so that's, that's a guided one. So, yeah, so there, there you have it, Sonny, um, uh, for the pretty, I hope that's a helpful description. Oh, absolutely. And there are so many other just the subsets of this that the folks who have had these shared crossing experiences come back. Now, now they can only go to a certain point. They can't go all the way into the light. They have to leave the dying person to go on their journey fully home. Um, but when they are come back from the experience, this is one of the features of a near-death experience. Sorry, I'm kind of stacking things. But near-death experience memories are so vivid and they carry through to the, you know, the end of a, you know, decades of a life after that. It seems like these shared death experiences also have that feature that the memory is so tangible, so visceral, and it ends up transforming the person's life in many cases when they do come back from the shared death experience. Have you, can you say yeah. a little bit about that? I mean, you're spot on the transformational impact of the shared death experience appears to be similar, if not identical to the near death experience. Uh, keep in mind in a, in a near death experience, often there's physiological impact, which has a whole other piece to it. Uh, because when you have a brush with death, there's going to, there's likely trauma involved uh, with the shared death experience. There's no trauma involved you are just being invited into this transition with the dying. And so the, the, 
I think there's a pro and a con to that. The pro is you don't have to have a brush with death. So you're not endangering your physical being and your psycho-emotional uh, reality. But there's also another piece, a bit of a liability, and that is you're more easily able to discount it. Huh. Okay. Because you know, you don't have a physiological marker on the experience. Right. Um, so so this is why one of the reasons I hypothesize is that the shared death experience happens when the main event is that someone else is dying. It's not about you. Very, you know, you know, there's not, many people are like, you know, how are you doing with your grief? Can I take care of you? Da, 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 da. But they're not asking, I wonder if you had any uh, interesting experiences there, you know, <laughs> Uh, which, by the way, is what, uh, you know, kind of the cutting edge practices now in cardiac care are doing. They are asking their client, their patients after cardiac interventions, just want to know, this is, of course, if you run under anesthesia, just want to know if you had any interesting experiences. This is something that Dr. Pim von Lommel in the Netherlands introduced uh, when he found that 17% of his cardiac patients were having near-death experiences and and they didn't really know it until he asked them yeah. oh that's so um, awesome i love that that's happening <laughs> i know yes <laughs> yes yeah, so if, if you need to attend to that please <laughs> so i'm going to ask uh william when he comes back so i have to ask you this is this may seem a little random but it just occurred to me because one of the 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 pieces of transformation that I noticed from the folks that you feature in the book is that oftentimes having one of these experiences changes the degree of grief or how the grief is experienced. Um, often it can help tremendously in those feelings. So my question is, I noticed this year, it came across my newsfeed that they have now added to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, prolonged grief disorder. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Not to take too much time away from your book, but yeah. I wonder shared death experiences have got to help with that kind of a thing. Well, yeah, let's answer the latter question first. Yeah. Um, so this is a profound finding with uh, my research on shared death experiences. And that is that the grief, as we call it, grief resolution processes, that's what we call them as psychotherapists, the grief resolution process or processes for the bereaved is greatly enhanced in a positive fashion. And why? You're always gonna feel loss, melancholy, emptiness when a loved one dies and you don't have that relationship close at hand anymore. But with shared death experiencers, they have this experience. They'll say this. I know my loved one is alive and well somewhere. I know they're in a beautiful, glorious afterlife of sorts. I know that I'll see them again. I know that I'm going to go to that place as well when I die and be reunited with them. I also know that this life has meaning in a way that I didn't really understand prior to my shared death experience, because when I was there, I got to see a deeper, more ultimate reality that this human life sits inside of. Yeah. In other words, that dimension, that reality is more real and enduring than this human life, which we naturally put all of our 
kind of attention and eggs in that basket. Like this is it, you know? And so, so the grief process is much improved for a share death experiencer. Now to your, the other question about the, the new DSM five prolonged grief diagnosis. Um, you know, I was just at the, uh, I, the, um, Association for Death Educators and Counselors in uh, St. Louis about a month plus ago, and I was giving a talk on the shared death experience, to which the community there is is opening up as well. They know these experiences happen, and uh, so this is great to go with this wonderful community of people who work with, you know, in various ways uh, around death and dying. And so the, you know, those uh, mental health practitioners who have to negotiate with these diagnostic codes it was interesting to hear people's different uh, responses to it. In some ways, it's important to identify that grief takes longer than we think most of the time. Um, and so, but the, but the negative side of that is why are we diagnosing this as a, some sort of pathology? So, and, you know, this is a, this is always the, double-edged sword of mental health and having diagnostic codes, because the only way you can get coverage, um, you know, insurance and what have you is through diagnosing this as a pathology, because, you know, our medical system is based on a, uh, essentially it's a disease model. You have to assess, uh, diagnose, and then give a treatment plan or prognosis. And that's how billing happens. And that's what the lifeblood of the system is. So, um, so, I'm mixed about it. Um, I like the fact that increasingly mental health practitioners and the general public are embracing the reality that grief takes as long as it takes. It normally takes longer than we think. And, and it can be quite debilitating uh, for some of us. But here's a piece that I want to offer to you and your listeners. And that is that Fortunately, the cutting edge of grief and bereavement therapy is evolving and evolving rapidly, and the shared death experience and other shared crossings sit right in the middle of this. So let me take a moment to define what shared crossings are. So as I said, the shared death experience <clears throat> is this experience that happens typically right at or around the time of death. There are a series of other experiences, end-of-life experiences, that you know, I have identified as shared crossings because I think it's the best way to give more uh, form and understanding to them. And they begin with, and as I say this, I know your listeners are going to go, the lights are going to go on. Oh, yeah. So the first one you can have, the first shared crossing experience can happen, you know, usually weeks, months, and sometimes a year or a few in front of a death. And it's a pre-death premonition you have some profound insight or experience that lets you know that either you or someone close to you or even some major event is going to cause death and loss. And that's the first of our shared crossing experiences. And I should say, I interpret shared crossing experiences as somehow getting um, information, a communication from a higher source can be perceived as from another dimension or across the veil that is coming to us that offers insight and hopefully uh, it's coming with the sense to assist you and help you. 
So if you get a pre-death premonition that a loved one of yours has cancer, you can help them, you know, and you can help prepare. Um, and likewise yourself, you can start making decisions. Oh boy. You know, I was working with a client who had the insight that he was going to die of throat cancer the same way his uncle had. And he just saw it and it really helped him get prepared with he and his family as they went through the final stages of his life. Had he not had that, that premonition, he said to me, he said, I had not seen this coming years ago. I would not, well, it's not that, it was like a couple of years ago. He said, I would not have um, been prepared the way I am now. And I would be in denial. I'm not in denial. I knew this was going to happen. I'm having the conversations I need to have, and I'm setting my family up for my departure. So there's benefit in these shared crossings. There's also pre-death dreams and visitations. And, and that's, we focus on the visions and visitations. And that is the dying see their departed loved ones, deceased loved ones on the other side. And they typically come to them and say, get prepared. You are going to be dying soon, and we're going to be here to help you with that transition, so don't sweat it. So if you allow these experiences to come to you as the dying, then you're going to have a great deal of comfort uh, around what's happening to you, as opposed to the anxiety about, you know, what is this cliff of death I'm, I'm, I'm heading towards? When you have a pre-death vision or visitation from a trusted relative or guiding spirits, you know, there's all sorts of guardian angels of sorts that come as well. And they, they provide comfort say, don't worry about it. We got it covered. Just get, you know, get ready for the journey and, and say the things you need to say. There's also um, terminal lucidity, which is happens right before uh, a moment of death, typically. And it's, you know, there's people that are physiologically limited, all of a sudden express themselves, express themselves in ways that were medically unexplainable. Like you see persons with Alzheimer's get cogent and clear of mind and start having meaningful conversations with their loved ones, you know, around their bed. And people are like, granny wasn't even able to do this for the last year and a half. Yeah. What's going on? Granny's coming back. Oh, granny is not coming back. This is a sign. She's having a terminal moment. And this is a harbinger that death is actually quite soon at hand. Yeah. So the, you know, and Steve Jobs had this, people know the founder of Apple computer when he was dying and his sister, Mona Simpson reports just moments before uh, Steve died. He opened his eyes and, and he had been comatose, uh, some you know non-responsive, and he opened his eyes and said, "Oh wow, oh wow, oh wow!" And that's the sign for those of us who work in this field. We just go, "Of course, he is seeing the other side. He's seeing where he's going. He's seeing the glorious afterlife, and he is heading there." Um, so, yeah. And so, um, you know, and those of you who are on TikTok, Nurse Julie calls this um, the rally. Um, and it's she's been very helpful in informing people about this rally at the end of life. You come to and you're, you know, whatever. So the shared death experience I've already talked about. It's the top. The, I call it the queen of shared crossing experiences mm -hmm. right around the moment of death. But then there's some other experiences that happen after death, which are so profound. These are post-death visions and visitations of our deceased loved ones. There's two types. One is what I call direct post-death visitation. And it's went soon after the death of a loved one. And that loved one seems to be hovering around a bit yeah. and giving instructions. And it's as, as we hear in the research all the time, it was like my mother was in my mind telling me <laughs> what to do and answering my questions. I'm thinking about 
her funeral and she tells me, wear this, seat those people there, and please talk about that and be aware, be, uh, be, um, aware that Aunt Nancy um, is not going to be comfortable talking to that person. So sit them, you know, so, and they're getting all this information saying, am I making this up? No, this happens. Direct post-death communication. So, and then there's another type that happens usually a little bit later. It's very similar. It's just a vision or visitation. And it's just that they see their loved one appear right at the foot of their bed or in the ceiling of a room or sitting in a familiar place in their house or garden or wherever. And they look over and they recognize this departed loved one and they go, what? And then there's a communication. It's usually like this. How are you? And then you say, well, I'm fine. How are you? I'm quite well, thank you. (laughs) I just want you to know that I am indeed alive and well. And I'm with you. Mm. And this begins, uh, can begin a, a type of relationship that we call continuing bonds. This is a radical departure from traditional grief therapy. Traditional grief therapy has been uh, let go of your loved ones, move on and find new relationships to replace the ones you've lost. Continuing bonds is not like that. Continuing bonds asserts you can continue to have a relationship with your departed loved ones. And you can use these, you know, shared crossing experiences post-death in particular to let you know that they're alive and well somewhere and they want some type of relationship with you, perhaps maybe they'll say to you, as we have seen in a few cases, you know, from a deceased relative, I want you to know that I'll be moving on to another dimension and it'll be more difficult for me to be in relationship with you. But when you cross over, I will be there. I just want you to know that I I'm going on to the next stage in my life here, but I love you. You're doing well, but I won't be able to communicate with you as frequently as I have been before. So there you have it. And, and, um, and that can be a challenge for continuing bonds, but it's also very healing when it's that clear, when you know they are alive and well, and you know that they're going to meet you when you die yourself. So continuing bonds is this therapy that, uh, that invites the bereaved to negotiate uh, and craft their own relationship with um, the departed. And yes. it's beautiful. Oh, yes. Um, there, and I'm looking at our time and I'm, there's so many more things I wanted to ask about. But two things, finally, I want to make sure people are aware of your events that will be coming up there. And I think uh, this fall, so somewhere between September through November. Um, and um, just with the best thing to see the details on that, go to sharedcrossing.com. Yeah. Look at events. Yeah, that's a great one, Sunny. Yeah, if you go there and you know what, I would say this because- the events we have for this fall are not fully announced yet. We've had such a crush of interest, which is wonderful on my small staff here, that we are putting together that fall schedule right now. But you're right. Our Pathway program will be offered online for the first time. Uh, it'll be in person in Santa Barbara as well, at least once. And then it will also be online. And this is the program where we teach people how to have a conscious, connected, and loving end-of-life experience. And we'll teach them the methods to enable a shared uh, crossing experience generally and uh, the shared death experience specifically. And yeah, these are methods I've developed over well over a dozen years now, helping people who say, 
I love the shared death experience. I love these shared crossings. How do I have them? And so I've been working to develop methods that seem to help, seem to help. You know, we, we find that most of our people will have some, more than most, about 80% will have some type of shared crossing experience. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is the thing, Sonny. This is, I appreciate your shock about that. The reality <laughs> is these are happening and, and they're more frequent than we know. And, and I'm just giving people both the information that they do happen and, and some connection to them. And I teach them how to have them. So when they do happen, they can lean into them and really say, oh, this is happening. They know how to receive it and get the full benefit of it. So, um, so yeah, check out our website. Sign, if you sign up for our website, uh, go to our contact page. We'll send you everything you need to know. And we don't send out a lot of emails, like a monthly you know, so don't worry about getting deluge. We're really sensitive that way. We try to be. We also have a story library on our website that you can see videos of people sharing their accounts. That's from our you know, over 250 now recorded interviews with people. And then I want to say something. This, too, is not on the website, but we're doing it right now. Once again, because of the demand for people who work in end of life and that's any kind of end of life provider, uh, also psychotherapists, mental health providers and spiritual care providers. I'm going to be doing um, kind of a, kind of a group, a special group, like a type of consultation group, because I get so many questions from professionals, so many wonderful questions about what is this, how do I work with this, how to bring up this topic with this type of a family uh, or this type of a person, uh, and there people have their own experiences as well that get them interested. So this is going to be a consultation group of sorts online. First time I'm doing it. That's really going to be how do you take these experiences and um, and work with them kind of with people at different stages. So depending on wherever you are on this map of working with people at end of life, um, you're going to get all sorts of tools for how to negotiate and how to, you know, be clinically sound in your work with people. And I, I'm doing this also because I know people have had experiences themselves that have got them into this. And so how do you talk about these? How do you integrate what you know in a constructive way into your professional work? So that's happening too. So thank you for sending, giving me the opportunity to talk about that. I'd love to get people up in your Seattle area. I know there's a lot of interest up there. Yeah, absolutely. And I just have to say, you know, and you just mentioning, you know, if you have the tools and know what to expect, you can lean into them. And I will just leave this kind of on a cliffhanger. The last story in the book about a shared death experience that you had that you were able to lean into Holy wow, that one just looks like, whoa, what a perfect way to conclude the book. So we'll just leave that for folks since we don't even have time to, to go any further into it. That'll be our cliffhanger. The book is At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. So At Heaven's Door, the website is sharedcrossing.com. I have been speaking today with William Peters, Oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite interviews. I could talk to you for hours. Thank you for coming on Sunny in Seattle and sharing this incredible work that you're doing. You are so welcome. And I just feel like it's a privilege for me to be able to be with you, Sunny, and share what I've learned uh, with your audience. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, that'll do it for today. You've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. We'll see you next week, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>